Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? Welcome to another episode of Rider on the Road. It's episode number four in our series, and I've got with me today a very, very special guest. Her name is, by chance, Melinda Hammond. Uh, now, Melinda and I have had a chance to chat, and we both agree that we're both infamous and we both have very important names. Um, but unfortunately, Melinda's been writing since 1980 and she has a lot more novels under her belt than me. So in this particular instance, I'm going to step back and hand over to the expert. But before I do, I'd like to go through a little bit of an introduction that I found. And it was a quote by, I guess, someone who publishes Melinda, I'm not sure, by single titles. And it says, Melinda is one of the brightest stars in the Regency firmament. Her plots are fast-paced, her characterization impeccable, and her ability to evoke the past in a vivid and colourful way, superb. Okay, welcome, Melinda, to Rider on the Road. What do you say about that very wonderful quote? That is, it, it is a wonderful quote. It's uh, from a, a website that reviews Regency and historical novels. Uh, I'm quite clear they, they like they like the ones that I write. So uh, that's, that's quite useful. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's very good when, when, uh, you, you write something that obviously hits the spot, uh, and people relate to it. I write, I'm a great fan of, uh, Georgette Hare and, uh, Jane Austen and absolutely love their books. So that's the style that I write in. Uh, and obviously somebody, luckily someone agrees, a reviewer agrees, which is great, great news for me. Very, very affirming. Yeah, and you said you write in the style of Georgetta Hare and that she inspired you, and I also noticed Jane Austen, and Melinda and I were talking before we recorded this, and ever since I've been a little girl, I read the Georgetta Hare novels, I've studied Jane Austen throughout my academic career, and as soon as I picked up uh, one of Melinda's novels last night to read. It was called Winter Inheritance. It took me right back to those days where I had nothing else in my life to do but read beautiful romance novels. Everything that I've picked up about you, Melinda, is romantic. I'm sitting here looking at <laughs> her now, beautiful blonde-haired lady, beautiful English drawing room, bookshelves in the background, Melinda, you've created a persona for yourself, but I'm guessing it's also the real you. Would you like to talk to us about your love of romance? Oof, I'd love to think it was the real me as well. It probably, it must be a facet. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it can all be false, but uh, um, I've always loved romance. It, it's escapism. Everybody needs a certain amount of escapism in their lives, I think. Uh, 
And uh, it's just the sort of books that I've always wanted to write. And I'm lucky enough to live in a very romantic part of the world, uh, up on the Yorkshire Moors, literally in a, a stone's throw from Haworth, where the Brontes lived and wrote their, their books. So very much Wuthering Heights country, which is great. Um, we live uh, up on the moors in an old farmhouse, so I can go out, I can walk on the moors. Literally, I don't have to drive anywhere. I just take the dog out, go for a walk over the moors when I want inspiration, which is wonderful. Um, for this other world, this uh, 18th and 19th century England, which is the, the world I like to write about. Now, Melinda and I, again, have already talked about the difference in our temperatures, but we both agree that it's 18 degrees where she is and 18 degrees where I am in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, but she's in the middle of summer and I'm in the middle of winter. Now, you're out <laughs> walking on the moors at the moment, Melinda. How beautiful would that be at this time of year? It's incredibly beautiful. You have uh, We have curlews and lapwings um, um, nesting up on the in the fields. Uh, and then when the sun comes out, which it does occasionally, the skylarks are singing during the day, which is beautiful. So there is, uh, it's, it, it, we also can have the, the bad weather and the cloud can come down and the wind and the rain. So it, it's not all brilliant. You have to be a bit hardy as well. Uh, a good pair of boots, I think, and a, and a raincoat are essential. But it's a lovely place to live and, and it's so good to be able to get out and, and just let your brain wander away into another world uh, and just leave the cares of this modern one behind, even if it's only for a while. Yeah. When, you, when you're out there and you're walking, there seems to be a tendency now for writers to use, I guess, technology to help them get their stories down faster and faster. But I'm wondering in the world that you describe that you still do it the old-fashioned way, that you still think your stories through and you come home and you get them down? Or are you one of these people that carry a recorder in your pocket? <laughs> uh, no, I, I actually hate the sound of my voice if I record it. I can't, I can't listen to it afterwards. I don't like listening to myself, the recorded version. Um, so I tend to think up the story I'm, I'm actually there. The, I don't know whether whether you've heard it, but the, the the terms plotter and pantser is two sorts of writers. The pantser writes by it's like flying by the seat of your pants. You set off. You're never sure where you're actually going, and you're not sure if it's going to work, and you just hope it does. That's my type of writing. The other type is the plotter who goes through, sets everything down perfectly. Uh, knows where the story is going every step of the way. I never know that. I always know it's going to be a happy ending, but how they're going to get there, I rarely know. And that's what the, the walking does. It sorts the bits out in my head. And then I come home and type it. I used to write into um, onto paper with shorthand, but now I type, usually go straight onto the computer, which saves some time. Mm. Uh, but the the stories it, it's it's sometimes they're just 
bubbling in your head and you just have to get them get it onto paper so or or onto a computer screen really Mm. that leads me and i'm sure we all want to know the answer to this this is a lady who's been writing since 1980 and we'll take you through that journey shortly how how long each day do you spend working oh uh I have actually, I've, I've tried to be a bit scientific and time this occasionally. I don't think I do more than four hours actual writing because if you turn the timer off every time you get up to do something or you get interrupted or you go onto the internet and check Facebook or Twitter, you'd be surprised how much of a day you can lose. I, I tend to try and keep office hours. Um, so I, I get up and start working either eight or nine o'clock um, and finish. Sometimes I can go on till five or six, but very often there's time taken out for research, for reading, um, for checking facts and figures and things. So the actual, I, I do work a full day, a full eight, nine hours a day. But sometimes I, you probably find it as well. That thing called the internet can be quite seductive at taking up your time, which is quite naughty. And then, of course, the dog has to be walked and the uh, the phone has to be answered. So, yeah. it's, uh... um, Melinda let us in on a little secret. Her husband actually works away some of the time. So she has an advantage over, I guess, some of us in that she doesn't have to worry about him coming home. But having said that, I'm guessing when he is home, he may take up more of your time than maybe would otherwise be expected, perhaps? Um, I think I think we try to make the most of the time we're together. So I think from that point of view, it works very well. It, it, I think for any writer, you have to shut yourself away, don't you? You have to be a bit uh, a bit organised. So if he was home more often, it would I would have to... Uh, just close the door on the office and say, now is my writing time. Yeah, so. and I think, I think that's something that we all need to remember. In order to succeed, we need to dedicate time and not just a little bit of time. Like Melinda, it's a real job. I think there's a book by Steve Pressfield called Turning Pro. If we're serious about the writing game, then we have to give it priority and I think there's a lot of stuff floating around the internet at the moment that makes me cross that says you can write a book in 30 days you can do this wonderful thing in two weeks Mm. writing kids books is easy and I'm going from where I'm sitting I think it's really hard work and you really have to dedicate your time and your mind to it do you find when you're doing your research and you're doing your writing that you don't churn things out and um, send them off quickly, that it actually takes, I guess, a fermentation period where you work really hard at it when you're waking, when you're sleeping and when you're out walking. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, you can't, I, I don't think you can just dash off a book. You, you, you might have the story in your head, but when you get it onto the paper, the, the grammar the punctuation, the actual story itself has to be polished so that the reader understands what you are trying to say. Um, because sometimes the words that are in your head aren't the words that get down onto the page and you have to, 
you have to hone that to make it the best possible story that you can. And sometimes that can take several drafts. And if you can put it away, it's, it's always a great idea. Um, it's something that I tell new writers all the time. Um, if you've got time to put the book away for a few weeks and then come back to it, you can look at it with fresh eyes then uh, and you can see the flaws in the story much better. And also the, the typos, the, the actual practical, physical um, process of producing a good piece of literature which is quite important. Even though I, I write very light romance, it's still important that the, the writing is good because if there's problems, for me anyway, if the writing isn't good, it pulls me out of a story. Very much so. And there's so much focus on, I guess, indie publishing nowadays, but you started in the 80s? You've been writing yes. now for 35 years, 36 years. It's scary, oh, isn't it? I think I was writing, I've been writing since I was a teenager, but I, I was published first in the 80s. Yeah. So uh, I think a writer always, I've always written. I think it was one of those things. I, at school, I, was, I would always write and, and make up stories before that. I remember sitting in the playground with my friends making up stories for them. So I'm a storyteller. Rather than a, a a literary writer, I am a storyteller. But you have to get that over. So you have to uh you have to um you have to know the, your craft of writing and language, which is fairly important, I think, for, for communicating, communication. So yeah, it's uh, and when I started, you had to publish, you had to find a publisher if you wanted to get out there. And I was very lucky that I found Robert Hale, first of all, uh, who published my, my Georgian and Regency novels. And since then, I've published with other publishers and moved on to Harlequin, Mills and Boone. But now, um, for my Regencies, I'm tending to go towards the India. I'm, I'm republishing my backlist uh, the books that were published by Robert Hale. Now I, I'm putting those out myself. Winter Inheritance is one of those that was published originally by uh, Robert Hale. But being historicals, they they don't date the same as contemporary books. So, um, and there is still a market for, for the Regency and Georgian novels, which is great. And all sorts of Georgian romance and Regency romances um, from the the very hot to what they call the sweet traditional regencies, which are, uh, tend to be my Melinda hands. They tend to be more uh, sweeter. Uh, sweet romances, clean romances, there's several titles for them. Yeah, so. I think the one I was reading last night and even listening to you, I have so many questions, so if I jump around a bit, I have to apologise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll have to do it again. We'll just do, we'll do it more often. Yeah. Well, I was reading last night about uh, Rafe and Verity in Winter Inheritance, Mr Bannerman yeah. and Miss Shaw. Um, now, I fell in love, of course, with Rafe, as one must immediately. It was very clear from the outside that your baddies were baddies and your goodies were goodies. Um, talk yes. to me about the the research process that goes into these novels. Oh, um, research. I've been doing research for, for decades of the Georgian Regency period in England, um, so that is that's where I'm most comfortable. But I, every time I do a novel, I have to read 
I have to find more. There's always a few details that I need to check up on or or read more about. Most of, a lot of it comes from uh, historical novels that are, uh, or sorry, historians, you know, historical books, history books, uh, non-fiction books that I've read over the years. Um, uh, little gems that you pick up that, that you don't think are going to have anything interesting in and then, then you find a little little point that you enjoy. Uh, and with the internet, there's an awful lot more information now. A lot of newspapers have been digitised, the old ones. Um, there's one called the uh, the Georgian Newspaper Project, which is uh, Bath newspapers from the 18th century have been uh, all recorded now and they're all on online for anybody to go in and have a look. Uh, all the information is there and you can pick up lovely little snippets in there of information and then you, you just follow that up with research, uh, the old way of going to libraries or getting books and maybe stuff on the internet as well, looking that up. But it's, I love the research part. The, the problem comes stopping the research and starting the book. But it's very much a background for my characters. Um, I like the history to be correct, but I don't want it to take over. I'm not writing historical novels in the in the about real people. Uh, so the history is is the background. It's the tapestry, and I weave my story and my my characters onto that onto that tapestry. Yeah, and that came through very clearly in Winter Inheritance. I was walking down the street with the characters. I was seeing, I guess, the shops, although I don't think you called them shops in those days, the mills and all that kind of thing. Um, But it was very much a background, and I'm guessing that's a skill that you've honed over all those years of writing. You do it effortlessly. Um, When it comes to your research, just before we let that go, your website says you have always had a love of history. You've spoken about how you do it. What's your advice to someone setting out how to control that research process and not let it take over your writing? Oh, um, that's that's a very, very difficult one. You have to avoid information dump. Uh, it it it's very easy, especially for, for new writers, to do that. You get so involved in your subject uh, that you fi- suddenly find yourself, you could write pages and pages on, on one little point. But if it doesn't move the story forward, probably it can go. You have to explain. The, the thing about history is your, your reader may not be familiar with some of the terms that you use, so you have to make it plain what you're talking about but you don't have to go into reams of detail. Uh, you, you tend to, you, what you're writing is a story and the story has to move on without boring your reader. That's, that's the main thing. If they're interested in the history, they'll do what I did when I was young and I wrote, read historical novels. They will then go out and read the history of it. And if your novel's good enough, it will stand up and they will say, yes, that, that, that's right, that's the feeling I got from it. But we're also creating a world uh, that doesn't exist. So it's, it's, there's a fine line between the fantasy and the history. Um, I don't really think readers of my novels would want their heroines to have no teeth by the time they're 40 or, or t- 
to smell the smells that probably were around in a, an age that didn't wash that much. Um, or even when you go back to the Regency time, uh, the, the Georgian times, and they, they had their hair put up with, with pig's lard uh, and held into place with with big false hair pieces and things, and then they would sleep with it up like that, and have to have combs, special sticks to get right into the head to scratch where the lice were itching. That's not romance. That's not romance. So uh, it's it's nice to know, but it's not really the story that I'm telling. Yeah, and remember, for all of you out there listening, choose your details wisely. that's a a good one i shall i shall remember that one yes yeah uh i want to pick up on and again jumping around you mentioned the word indie publishing which is very dear to my heart and the reason i've started this podcast is because i've been an english teacher forever and it's very important to me that everybody has the opportunity to get their stories out but in a way that is professional now, you've come from a traditional background and I'm assuming you will continue to publish traditionally, but you're also um, making a move into that indie publishing. Can you take us back and tell us what made you make that decision and where you think it's going to take you? Um, the, the, the beauty of indie publishing is the freedom it gives you to publish what you really want to do. And... Um, much as I I love writing my books for um, for Harlequin Mills and Boom, but there are other books that wouldn't fit into that Sarah Mallory mould. Uh, my my Sarah Mallory books tend to be more about the the romance. The, the history is the background, but it's the main. There's two main characters. With indie publishing, you can do you can uh, expand slightly. Maybe have more characters things that are aren't quite so commercially viable for a mainstream publisher and publishers these days there are so many people writing it's even even for established writers uh it's difficult if you want to break out and do something slightly different i've done a a couple of books that are um contemporary and historical a mix of dual time stories uh not quite time slip but but uh, maybe ones with more of like a, a, a slightly paranormal, ghostly element. Getting those published by mainstream, if if you have, uh, um, if you have a, a formula that works as a writer and your name is known for one thing, sometimes publishers aren't very keen on taking on taking a risk. Whereas with indie publishing, you can because you're the one taking the risk. You're not risking. Uh, all the uh, investment that a, a publisher, an, an old, a traditional publisher, will put in. So, um, it's it's an exciting time, but there's a lot of people out there in the market. That's that's one of the problems. It's the beauty of it, and also the problem that there are so many people now publishing their own stories, and it's lovely that they're all out there. Uh, so. Yeah, it, it's an exciting time for, for writers, I think, and for the publishing industry. And, look, I've heard some horror stories and mainly through reading blog posts and listening to podcasts and listening to writers talk about 
how traditional publishers aren't releasing their backlists and um, not allowing writers to move forward in their own way. And then we've got the whole story of hybrids of people traditionally publishing and in indie publishing different titles. Is it more mm-hmm. power to the author nowadays um, that we have or you have more negotiating power than you used to have? Oh, I, I personally, I wouldn't think there's more negotiating power. The, the publishers, they're, they're still, the market is changing, I feel, uh, and they are still feeling their way forward in a, a world that suddenly saw the ebook and the explosion of, of ebooks coming onto the market. Um, one of the things that the, the advantages it has, if you're traditionally published, or it should have, is quality. If you have a traditional publisher, if, if a reader buys a book from a traditional pu- publisher, they should be able to feel fairly confident that it's gone through an editing process. Um, so they, they should be fairly sure that the quality of writing they're getting is, is reasonable. Uh, with indie publishing, anyone can put up a book these days can publish their own book if they can use a computer or if they have a friend who can use a computer they can publish their own book and the quality can vary um so readers they some i i know quite a few readers now who who won't buy authors unless they're recommended to them because they've tried so many in the past and been disappointed and let's face it, life is too short to write to read a bad book. Um, if you read, if you pick up a book, you or, uh, or even an ebook on on Kindle or whatever, you want to be transported to another world, and the writing has to be reasonably good for that. And I'm, I'm maybe it's old school, but I think the language and the grammar has to be reasonably good as well. Uh, it has to carry the re- reader away. Uh, into that new world. Um, And I think that's something that we are trying to address as indie authors and traditional authors is making sure that that standard is maintained. I know with me, I pay an editor, I pay a cover designer, I pay, pay, pay to make sure that my books are the very best that they can be and I listen to professional indie authors out there and they actively encourage everyone to make sure that their content is of the highest standard um, because it has been a problem in the past. Mm. Um, And although indie publishing offers us all the freedom in the world, without a good book, none of the rest of it matters. That's true. It's, it's the, the, the writing is the important, it, for me, is, is very important. And most of the uh, successful authors that I know who've moved from traditional into, indie, into self-publishing or indie publishing will always say, even those who've been published for, for decades, will say it has to be edited. You need to, it's worth paying a professional editor to edit your work because it's very difficult for an author you are so close to your work when you've written it very difficult to actually see see the faults as an editor will 
Um, even if it's just the, the grammar and syntax and everything, it's, you, you do need it to be edited to make the book as good as it can be. You're right. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm finding myself trying to keep a low profile um, as an English teacher because a lot of what I'm reading in the blogs and in the posts uh, is that I would have been a writer much sooner, but my English teacher turned me against it. And I'm going, really? yeah. <coughs> oh, really? No, I, I didn't find that at all. I mean, um, maybe it's maybe it's some teachers are not as good as others. Who knows? <laughs> um, I found my English teacher, or the English teachers I had, uh, gave us quite a good grounding in in grammar uh and the history teacher gave me a, a love of history that made me want to read more about it and learn more about it and it just seemed natural to combine the two you know the you, but you need i think you need the good great grounding in english before you can write a good story yeah. if you can't communicate you can't tell the story yeah and i'm finding i don't know what it's like in england but here in australia there is a pushback to traditional grammar and it's actually taught explicitly um, through lesson after lesson after lesson. You need to know your nouns and verbs and you need to know your conjunctions uh, because it's been forgotten and it runs a very real risk with modern technology of texting and all those kinds of things uh, that those old-fashioned skills don't matter but as writers... They're our tools of the trade. And I'm groaning even as you and I are talking because I'm thinking I'm alienating some of my listen listeners even as I say this stuff. But if there's one thing that I can put out and you're saying as well, get your content right. Yes, I, I totally agree. If it's, it's communication uh, and the written word is a form of communication that, that needs needs to be right because you can you need to get the story over and and to paint that picture in the best way you can i suppose if if you're going to use or if i'm going to use the painting analogy then there are different ways of you know you have the impressionists and cubists and goodness knows what else um but i i just think like you that the the grammar and the the basis of the the writing is important uh, it tends to be, if the story is good enough, you can get away with the odd thing. And sometimes it's a writing style that people have. But that doesn't mean that the English should be bad. Um, maybe I'm old school on that. I don't know. But uh, uh, I just think it it is important. And you're right, with texting and computers, a lot of it can, can be lost. But the English language... Uh, or any language develops it's always developed uh, and it, we will we will take on the modern uh, idioms of, of the, the social media and things and it will be incorporated but it's the communication and uh, occasionally friends of mine put up um, little sentences with no commas in and and wherever you insert those commas can make things sound it can totally alter the uh, the meaning of the sentence and you find that when you're reading sometimes i i read for uh in england the uk's romantic novelists association and we have a new writers scheme where 
uh, authors can submit their work and we we read and we critique it and, and try and help them to to produce a better book and to get published. And some writers, they're very good, but you can see that, that with a little bit more honing, they could be a lot better. And sometimes when you're reading it, and, and we do it ourselves as well, sometimes there are complete howlers in the in the writing. So, yeah, I, I am all for, for grammar and English and communication. Get it right. So Yeah, and... When you talked, when you were talking there, it seems that you're very involved in mentoring and giving back uh, to new writers coming through behind you. That appears to be something that I've noticed is that writers are so very, very generous. Yes, uh, it's certainly amongst the uh, the romantic novelists that I know. Uh, I've been a member of the Romantic Novelist Association since I, almost since I um, I started, I was published in the 80s. Uh, and I've always found everyone is so generous with their their time and their information, the sharing of knowledge. You would think that we would be um, uh, very much competitors, but everyone is, is very generous and helpful. And we have, we have the most amazing parties as well, which is... Uh, I suppose we have the advantage living in in England that it's small and we can get there. Um, in Australia, you're probably a bit further away. Maybe it's more difficult to meet up. Um, but uh, yes, I I do find writers are very generous, very generous with with their information and the the, the t- telling helping you to to succeed. So. And I think with um, anyone new coming through. And I'm actively reaching out to new writers to say, it's okay to tell your story. We want you to tell your story and we want you to tell it in the best way you know how. And everybody is out there, I guess, to help you succeed. Um, Once upon a time, once you got a couple of rejections, that was it. You wouldn't try any further. But there is the indie publishing route now. But, again, it's so important that you surround yourself with a network that helps you be the best writer that you can be. Um, I'm going to sneak something in here that I thought we'd get to much earlier, um, but I've now taken up, I'm aware that I've taken up nearly an hour of your time. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Melinda, about branding. You are very clearly a a Regency romance writer. How closely do you protect that Melinda Hammond brand and that Melinda Hammond romantic author brand? Because... Coming through now, new writers have to create a brand from scratch. I've never really thought too much about it. Uh, I'm, I do think now uh, I might have to take another name. If I, if I do more serious historical novels uh, as opposed to the Regency and Georgian, I think I might, might use another name for it because uh, one does get branded um, and now people will know they they readers expect a certain thing from authors I think these days it used to be well maybe some authors still do write very varied books um, and the readers will stick with it but mainly if 
I, if you write a book that's slightly different, a reader can be disappointed because they pick your book up expecting one type of, of uh, story and if they get something else. It's one of the reasons I chose uh, to write for Harlequin, Mills and Boone under the name Sarah Mallory because those books, they're, they're a little bit racier um, they're a slightly different style. Not not a great deal. I love writing them, and they're they're not that different, but they are slightly different, and uh, um, they tend to go um, beyond the bedroom door, shall we say? Uh, whereas most of my Melinda Hammonds don't. Some do. It depends on the story. I, I find it depends very much on the story, um, how hot the, the you know the the story gets. Uh, it depends on the characters. Um, but I do think that the Melinda Hammond Georgian and Regencies now, I have done so many and they are they are a definite style. So I shall probably carry on and keep that as as a brand. Now. Yeah. And look, I've got to tell you, it I just love it when I flick through all your novels on Amazon. And there's my poor little miners wife sitting up in the middle of the romance novels. And I'm thinking, that's not quite right. <laughs> uh, and, look, I'm very much in the process of rebranding as writer on the road. And I've got a series of romance novels because I've travelled so much in Australia and they're around Australia in eight romances but it's certainly not going to be under Melinda Hammond. I'm thinking of going for Mel Hammond just to separate us yes. a little bit. Yeah. Mel Hammond sounds good, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So and, it, again, if you're starting out, you need to take these things into consideration, which obviously I never did. I just blundered in. But it's very important to get that branding right. Otherwise, you need to, like I am, start again or... Think a little bit more carefully before you start out, whether it be a blog, whether it be a website, whether it be a podcast, although I don't recommend anybody goes that way. It's very, very technical and and I'm guessing <laughs> with a weekly interview it's going to take up an awful lot of my life. But the benefits are I get to talk to people like Melinda and even through you and I chatting, you've given so much information and you've been so very, very generous that anybody who's starting out can't help but listen to you talk and take away um, some things to think about with their own writing. And when I finish here tonight, I'll make some notes in our um, transcript to highlight some of the things that you've um, given us today so that next time we talk, we can cover some other aspects of the writing life. Uh, we've only touched base today, but we are up to an hour, um, give or take some of our interruptions, and I knew it would happen. Uh, but I, I'm going to do it. I'm sorry. Bear with me five more minutes. I started reading Winter, Inher in Winter Inheritance. I yeah. downloaded it specifically for this interview. And then mm -hmm. when I looked inside... I noticed it had originally been written in 2004, but of course I downloaded the 2016 edition and I went, oh, I wanted to have your newest one so I could talk about it. I didn't want to talk about an old one. And then I looked and I thought, hang on, I've downloaded a boxed set of yours. And I went back to my box set on my Kindle and it was the Regency Quintet, which, lo and behold, one of the Regency Quintet 
the poor seasons. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I now have two copies of Winter Inheritance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry about that. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I re, uh, retitled Winter Inheritance because um, it was originally The High Clough Lady, yes. which when it was traditionally published was, was fine. But I did have a lot of people, we, we hadn't long moved to Yorkshire in those days when I first published it. Uh, and it was set up here on the Yorkshire Moors. And a lot of people said, how do you pronounce Highclough? Because it, of the spelling. And I thought, well, I could probably do with having a rebranded title anyway. And then I wanted to put some books together into a box set. Uh, so I changed it to Winter Inheritance just so that I could add it into those four Regency seasons. Yeah. But the box sets such good value that I hope you don't feel shortchanged on it. <laughs> oh, I love it. I've been caught out by Nora Roberts for years, and I love Nora Roberts. Yeah. I buy everything that she puts yeah. out, whether it be a mystery or whether it be her romances. Um, she is one lady that writes, I guess, very in-the-moment romances, and her she's very sparing with her words, and I take her as a bit of a guru uh, like you. And... Right from day one, I could buy a book released in 2015 or 16, but it was originally published in 1985, and I go, oh, why does this happen? But it's happening more and more, and I suggest to any of our readers out there that if you're buying a book, look in the inside cover, see actually when the copyright is, so you yeah. know what you're buying. But what I want to throw to you now, Melinda, what should I have downloaded to get some of your more recent things? Oh, um, the the thing about the Melinda Hammonds is that Robert Hale published them in the 80s, but they only published them in hardback. So they went into the libraries, but there were very, very few copies around, which is why I've, I wanted to put them out again as e-books to make a bigger, um, uh, 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 to get a bigger audience for them. Um my, I, I'm so busy writing the um, Sarah Mallory's at the moment that Melinda Hammond's tend to be, I'm still getting my backlist from Robert Hale out there for people. Uh, the next one to go out, um, I'm actually, I am actually writing a Christmas Regency though, which will go into an anthology with other writers at the end of this year. So that will be a brand new Melinda Hammond. And we put the we we put five of us put books together into a, a box set, so we have five authors, so readers of any of us buy the set, and they they get four other authors that they can try. So it's yeah. a, a nice way of of getting your books out there. So this Christmas one will go out, and then after Christmas, I shall probably put it out myself uh, as a single ebook. Um, but it, it should say in there that it was originally published in the anthology. You're right, you need to look in the inside cover for uh, to see when books were published before. But so many authors are now putting out their, their backlists because if, if a book was published years ago, uh, it will have had a, a short, a small readership, a much smaller readership um, by modern standards. So it, it's... Uh, it's good to get the books out there and keep them out there and, and pick up new readers. I mean, some of my readers weren't even born in 1980. So. Uh, and the historicals are, are 
they they just don't date they they stay the same so yeah i can i can assure every one of you listening to this that winter inheritance is my new favorite book and rafe or mr <laughs> bannerman is my new handsome hero i have given up on men altogether but now that i've met rafe i may may come back and try a third marriage uh but yeah. Keep in mind that as a marketing strategy, what Melinda has told us is something we should all consider. A box set with a group of authors is something that is happening more and more in the indie publishing world and it is a fantastic way of trying new authors uh, in a way that's not overly expensive but no e-books are that expensive anymore. Uh, and the added advantage of e-books that I've always found is as I travel around and as I live in my caravan and and move from place to place, I can take as many books with me. I don't have to cart the thousands of boxes of books that I've always carted around in the past. Uh, I think more of us are used to e-book reading now and we can sit on our trains and our buses and nobody needs to know that we're reading the saucy bits uh, or no one needs to know that we're reading romance, although I think the stigma of reading romance, I'm hoping, is long gone. Uh, it's it's still there, but um, there is a big market. In, in England, uh, romantic fiction is, I think, the biggest share of the, the reading market still, in, in its many forms, um, because most, most books have romance in them. Even Wilbur Smith admitted that one of his books was a romance, and he is actually now a member of the Romantic Novelists Association. We asked him if he'd if he'd like to join us. He said as long as he didn't have to do anything, he'd, he'd join. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there is romance in almost every book you pick up these days uh, of some some sort. It may not be the uh, the main story, the main thread of the story, but most books are the better for a little bit of, of love, I think. Yeah, and... I'm going to end on that note as we hit the hour and a half mark. Uh, Melinda has been such a wonderful, wonderful guest today. I, or Melinda and I have talked and we're going to try a little experiment. We're going to put snippets of this, heaven forbid we put the whole hour and a half up, of our interview on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel um, which I'll post up on my website and we won't put all of it up because there's just too much in it for for one sitting but everything Melinda has given us today is a treasure and a gem and we thank you Melinda for being such a great sport please please come back um, and chat with me again and I promise to keep it to the half hour that I said it would be well thank you it's been a, a real pleasure and uh Writers tend to talk on and on. so <laughs> Yeah, but usually we've got a glass of champagne in our hands. Yes, that's true. That's oh. true. That does help. Yeah, it, uh, it is breakfast time over here and I'm not quite that decadent most <laughs> days. Not on working days anyway. Well, I've heard that it's five o'clock somewhere, but it's certainly five o'clock here in, um, yes. in tropical Queensland. Uh, thank you. Uh, we will talk again. And to everyone out there, Melinda and I... We'll be firm friends forever and ever, and I promise never to use her name in vain. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Melinda, and we'll talk again. We will talk again, definitely. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.